Raising Peace would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was edited, recorded and mixed. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and future and acknowledge that this was, is and always will be Aboriginal land. Influencing young children to have a positive view of the weapons industry is really what's underlying this increasing interference of weapons companies in primary and secondary education. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Raising Peace podcast. In this episode, a talk from our 2023 Raising Peace Festival, where we heard from educators in Australia and Italy who are standing against the increased militarisation of our schools and universities. Miners and Missiles is a report by the Medical Association for the Prevention of War that describes the many ways in which defence companies are influencing school curricula. Like the tobacco industry and others before them, the defence industry is seeking to embed itself in the minds of our impressionable young people. Today you will hear in-depth presentations from Elise West and Christina Pagini. Christina Pagini is a secondary school teacher and a member of the Italian Observatory against the militarisation of schools and universities. But first, we start with Elise West. She's from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and also from Teachers for Peace. She also is the lead author of MAPW's report, Miners and Missiles. I'm going to introduce MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, for those of you who don't know us. This is the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War did something really extraordinary in the 1980s, which was to unite um, physicians, US physicians and Russian physicians around their common values as physicians. And on the basis that their obligations as, as doctors really overcame any of their differences, their national differences. And because the risks of nuclear war at that time were so high, they had an obligation to, to work together to address those risks. Gorbachev himself, when he, you know, when he reflected um, in a book he wrote later on, credited IPNW with changing his thinking on nuclear weapons um, due to their um, their rigorous evidence, but also their personal passion for the subject. So MAPW was launched in Australia just over forty years ago, and has really um, continued to carry the mantle of the work for abolition of nuclear weapons. It's one of our um, core campaigns. And um, while we are medical people, we're not just doctors, um, we're nurses and allied health workers. Um, we're people who work in hospitals, in hospital administration, we're social workers, and we're like-minded peace folks as well. Um, we really work, continue to work from that basis of medical ethics as well, the, the principal one of which, of course, is to do no harm, but also to prevent harm. That's in our name, Medical Association for the Prevention of War. I guess it's important to sort of state that we sort of see war as a social system. It's produced by people, by things that people do, by things that people think, um, by things that people don't do, and the things things that people don't think about. Um, it's an all-encompassing structure that really promotes and legitimises violence um, at every level of human society. Um, it has economic and social and cultural dimensions. And we're very clear that um, 
harm is caused even before the actual threshold of conflict occurs. So, um, you know, for the general population, um, we may sort of think about war as being extremely um, harmful when it starts happening and all those, those victims of conflict, um, you know, the sort of ongoing effects after that. But we would argue that there is, is a great deal of harm that's caused even before we get to that point. Um, so if war is a system, we also need to be working um, across the system. Our, our message, if we had a T-shirt, we don't have a T-shirt. If we had a T-shirt, it might look something like this, that peace is the best medicine. Um, this kind of combines our focus on health and humanitarian impacts, um, medical values, and the idea that um, peace is really the, the underlying factor um, that enables human flourishing, good health, action on climate, um, progress and equity and justice and, and so forth. For some time now, we've been working to kick the weapons companies out of the war memorial. Divestment is an important part of nuclear weapons abolition. It's about stigmatising nuclear weapons and moving money away from investments in nuclear weapons. Um, we work on the Australian trade in arms. Um, Australia has a sort of baseless ambition to be a top 10 global weapons exporter. Um, we've been working with partners to sort of highlight the lack of, lack of transparency and accountability that comes along with that trade in arms. Um, that briefing paper in the middle there is our work on uh, military greenhouse gas emissions. This is kind of an emerging issue and it's not very well understood in Australia as yet. Um, we sort of following patterns in other militarised nations, um, defence is Australia's largest public sector emitter, yet Australia's um, greenhouse gas emissions that are generated by the defence forces are not counted um, and not um, counted as part of our national inventory as well. This is sort of known as the military greenhouse gas emissions gap. Um, this is a whole sector of emissions that um, is not being addressed. Um, and over in the corner there, um, this is work with some of our partners to address um, human rights issues, especially those that have arisen from Australia's participation in the war of um, Afghanistan. I will move on now to the issue at hand, which is miners and missiles. So um, our work on the interference of weapons companies in education also kind of derived from our work for nuclear weapons abolition. Um, we saw that companies that profit from the production of nuclear weapons seek to generate social license. And one of those ways is by their engagement with um, civil society and education and those sorts of things. Um, in Australia, it was sort of well understood that the weapons industry was pretty well integrated into the tertiary education sector. And we decided to look a little bit further back down the line to see when this interference really started. So we started looking at primary and secondary education. This is kids from as young as five years old. Um, to really see, and when we looked at, we decided to look at this age group as well, because when we're talking about children, we actually are talking about um, people who are not yet able to consent to being influenced and don't yet have the critical abilities to understand. So 
This is an issue that's caught a lot of attention recently. In July this year, the Department of Defence announced a nuclear propulsion challenge, which was an educational challenge aimed at uh, young people all around Australia. Now, this had a strong whiff of PR around it. Um, a lot of the language sounded very, very slick. Um, not long before, the Australian Navy had contracted um, a, uh, a professional organisation to help it um, address its recruitment issues. Teachers and teacher unions around the country were really quick to respond. You'll see there in August, the Australian ran an article about um, individual teachers and um, individual branches of the Australian Education Union who resolved to boycott the, the program. It quite clearly says that it's aiming to get kids interested in uh, joining the Navy. All of the content and all of the educational material is branded with the um, Navy logo. Um, you'll see it references, you know, some of those those uh, values like confidence and communication and and, and teamwork. Um, it all sounds uh, very thrilling. Um, but there's not really a lot to it, which I think really emphasises the point that it's really um, a brand association exercise. So we had our AUKUS submarine challenge aimed at kids aged 10. And then later on in September, the federal government announced um, 4,000 new Commonwealth supported places. So these are places that students don't pay for, that the government um, pays the fees for in um, STEM related subjects. So, and these were STEM subjects that was um, identified as being necessary for the submarine program. So we see we have the the young kids who start now getting interested, and then they go and then they go into the university and they come out into the defence force. So we all see the dots all kind of connecting up. Um, so again, this is not necessarily the first time this has happened, but this was kind of the first time that people had really um, reacted in very um, strong ways to this program. But in fact. Um, Defence has been talking about something like this for quite some time. But again, uh, this is really just Defence doing what it said it would do. This is back in 2019, where they used the words influence many times um, to describe what their role in the national STEM agenda would be. Um, influence the STEM curriculum, influence national STEM programs. So this is really very, um, very deliberate um, and you know, spelled out in their strategy. So what's driving this perceived need to influence curriculum and influence children is um, the, the calculation that the Australian Defence Force needs to grow its personnel. I've seen numbers that saying it has to grow by over 18,000 people over two decades. Now we know that young people's um, interest in joining the Defence Forces is on the wane because they're not stupid. Um, and the Defence Forces tried lots of different ways to attract children um, into the Defence Forces. They've used kind of advertising around, you know, live your dream and self-fulfillment and, you know, balance it with your other interests and so forth. There may be a overall shortfall in Australia's STEM workforce of upwards of 140,000 people. Um, this comes, this number comes from the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering from 2022. 
So this also, um, this sort of growing need for STEM talent um, is also set against the backdrop of ongoing decline and engagement and performance in STEM amongst Australian students. By that, it means less kids doing STEM subjects at higher levels, so later in high school and at tertiary level, um, and not doing as well, for example, against the OECD average. So over the past couple of years, there's been a decline in Australian student STEM performance against the OECD average. That seems to be an ongoing trend. Now, um, the Defence Department and the Defence Industry frame this sort of increased need for talent and a growing, a dwindling talent pool as a national security risk. They claim to be um, the sectors most at risk from this shift in young people's priorities. Um, another piece of context is an increased competition for tech talent overall. Um, in our report, we have a quote from someone that says, what, why would you go and make weapons when you can go work for Apple and make cool stuff that everybody wants to play with? So there's an increasing demand for tech talent. And I guess when we say tech talent, what we're kind of talking about is innovation. Um, the way that um, defence forces become more effective and more lethal, the way that um, weapons companies generate more profit is through innovation. Innovation is something that's really connected to, to people. So people um, become a really important industrial input, shall we say. Influencing young children to have a positive view of the weapons industry is really what is under, in, in order to help them reach their business goals is really what's underlying this increasing interference of weapons companies in primary and secondary education. We don't suggest that um, in the programs that are sponsored by weapons companies that lethal technology is promoted, no one's shooting anybody, there's no tanks driving around, none of those things. What's really happening is um, positive brand association, but they're wearing T-shirts with weapons company brands on them. They're getting certificates of participation with weapons companies brand on. There's a cool trophy there. It's made out of Lego and it's got a weapons company brand on it. Often um, the adults in the room will be volunteers from weapons companies. They'll be engineers who are vol volunteering their time to coach um, a bunch of kids to participate in a robotics competition, for example. So it's all about creating extremely positive experiences for kids. We really likened this to some of the tactics that are used by some of the other nasty industries around alcohol, junk food, you know, sugar, tobacco, and so forth. These are sort of collectively understood as being stigmatised industries. These are industries that are prone to public disapproval and often use sort of complex tactics to create relationships with consumers in order to keep selling their products, which are inherently very harmful. Um, this sort of gave us an idea about how we could um, prevent or make a little bit more problematic the association of weapons companies with schools. So we knew that there's we know that there's strong public support for limiting the extent to which harmful industries like junk food and alcohol and so forth can advertise to children, and that education departments and schools also take measures to protect kids from harmful influence. We thought that if we could make an argument that weapons companies belonged in the same basket as other 
nasty harmful things, we might be able to make a bit of headway. So we had a look at education department policy across all of Australia's um, states and territories. This involved correspondence with ministers, for example. So we resolved to see if we could kind of um, shift education departments on these particular policies. And I'm just going to talk you through some of the arguments that we used. Um, the first was we used a framing called the corporate determinants of health. Um, this comes from, uh, this is sort of a, a public health conception um, and was really well articulated. In our report, we looked at ways that um, weapons companies influenced the policy environment, shaped education policies, captured civil society, aligned with charities and used extensive supply chains to kind of spread out its influence. And by making um, parallels between the behaviour of other harmful industries and weapons industry, um, we think was really successful. Um, the other argument that we used, which I think was also very powerful, was talking about brands and children, so children's exposure to branding. Again, we used um, well-established work particularly around um, psychology and consumer science and things like that that looked at how people form brand associations of course children are very suggestible um, they can be very attached to whatever's in front of them whatever the best thing that happened that day was their new favorite thing um, they lack the critical skills to really understand what was happening with advertising um, they could also even when they knew say a product was bad for them they could also say that they preferred it and that they wanted it um, any parents around here probably that won't come as a surprise um, we learned that brands are really sticky when kids are exposed to them so you, lifelong associations can be formed in childhood even in spite of understanding that the brand itself may not do any good there can be still quite strong emotional attachments to brands. Um, we saw that weapons companies actively obscured their core business in their relationships with children and with schools and other educational institutions. They focused on socially acceptable aspects of their business, um, like aerospace and robotics and coding. Um, they really emphasised um, sort of emotional aspects of the participation as we saw before like teamwork and um, commitment and those sorts of things and they really emphasized um, diversity arguments so being focused on women or increasing participation against those socioeconomic groups for example and um, in talking about brands and children we also raised the issue of informed consent so because the weapons companies often obscured their association with lethal technology children were being associated and publicly associated with brands whose true meaning they could not possibly conceive of so there are photographs around of young people smiling and standing in front of a, a Lockheed Martin brand for example now that child doesn't know that Lockheed Martin you know is associated with alleged human rights abuses you know has a terrible record of corporate conduct and that child has probably also signed a consent form that has given Lockheed Martin the right to use those images across all media and in perpetuity. We talked about the extent of civilian harm that's created by the weapons industry, about the um, you know 
really extreme impact on human um, human rights and customary law. We talked about the opportunity costs of overinvestment um, in the weapons industry and in um, militarization more generally. We argued that the um, increase in militarization and, in, and the increase in spending in the weapons industry had no correlation whatsoever to human security and in fact was a contributor to growing insecurity around the world. And we made arguments around these companies' association with illegal weapons, um, mainly nuclear weapons. So um, since the entry into force of the TPW, um, we say that these are illegal weapons of mass destruction um, and companies that produce and profit from illegal weapons really have no place in education. Um, this argument sort of, I think, was probably less convincing but um, we tried to address the, um, the argument that um, the defence industry creates jobs, that investment in the defence industry you know, has um, economic benefits. Um, and we argued that, that there was significant underinvestment in other applications of technology that have a greater um, capacity to contribute to solving our big collective challenges. And this is what happened. So we've got three green spots on the map. I'm really pleased to say that Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland all changed policies as a result of advocacy. So in Victoria, the policy around teaching, teaching and learning materials was changed to say that um, learning materials produced by companies that make weapons um, are not appropriate in school. In New South Wales, um, industries uh, associated with armaments and weapons were added to the list of tobacco, junk food, etc. And the same in Queensland. Um, this was a really fantastic outcome. The reason why we wanted to change education department policy was to use as a lever to um, essentially oblige STEM programs to and their associations with weapons companies. The argument is that in these three states, at least, you have a compliance problem if you want to deliver programs that are branded by weapons companies in those states, and you have an underlying ethical issue because the purpose of the policy is to prevent harm. So the policy is telling you that these industries are harmful. Um, our next step is really is to go to programs and try and convince them that they need to um, change their behaviour. Um, I'm sort of changing hats now. I'm putting my pink hat on to talk to you about Teachers for Peace. Some of you may have already heard about Teachers for Peace. Um, we are a new organisation, sort of really getting, getting sort of started last year, but really just gathering strength this year. Um, the purpose of Teachers the piece is 100% to focus on the issue of weapons company interference in STEM education. Um, we really just have one mission at the moment. Um, we're laser focused on doing that um, and to sort of continue this work of separating STEM programs from their weapons companies' money. Um, I think the, the reason why it's been useful to sort of organise under this name is quite similar to the way that MAPW works um, in the sense that we are organising around a set of values that um, 
uh, unimpeachable, really. Um, everybody values education um, and everybody derives benefit from the values that underpin education. Um, we say that there is an intrinsic link between education and peace. Um, this is way back in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 26, that really um, tells us that education is is purposeful when it comes to peace. On a practical um, level, you, you can't have education without peace and you can't have peace without education, but there is a fundamental link between the two. Um, we're building on a long and very um, proud history of um, educators working for peace in Australia. Um, this is a quote from Sam Lewis, um, president of the New South Wales Teachers Federation in the 1950s, who was really clear about, about the um, effect of overinvestment in, in war um, and who was a great advocate of the statement that um, every war is a war on children. So early in the year, the New South Wales Teachers Federation at their national conference passed an excellent um, recommendation called On Peace, which really um, restated its commitment to work with the broader peace movement. Um, it stated its opposition to militarisation and to um, the AUKUS arrangement. The Australian Education Union, some of the Victorian branches, Maribyrnong, Inner City and Benalla, also passed excellent resolutions about the propulsion challenge, saying that they would not participate, but also making um, general statements about their role in building peace. And just last night, I heard that the Australian Education Union South Australia branch also passed a resolution. This means that we now have these three states with really powerful resolutions from teachers um, and education unions. And we'll be using this in our advocacy to, um, to programs. We've developed a program as well called Good Apples of STEM. Um, our logo is a little piece apple. Um, what we want to do is add value to the idea of STEM education that has peaceful and positive applications. I'm really happy to have guests from Italy here today because I think working internationally, um, this is a, a, a problem that we see in many parts of the world. So I think working together um, across borders would also be really fantastic. Yes, I mean, I'm, uh, yes, Christina Pigini, I'm a secondary school teacher and uh, I'm a part of this association that was born just uh, last year and uh, it's called the Observatory Against the Militarization in Schools and Universities because we are truly concerned about, you know, the growing uh, uh, presence of defense, you know, orientated uh, weapon companies in school and the army as well. So I'm here today uh, to represent the Italian Observatory against the militarization schools. And our association was born from strong concerns felt by a group of militant teachers within the grassroots union COBAS Scuola. Uh, it's like a trade union for, for teachers regarding wars on international developments and the dissemination of war and defense culture by the military in the world of education, vocational training, and universities. These interferences did not occur until a few years ago, but are by no means a product of the current right-wing Italian government. 
These policies were also carried out by center-left governments and are now undergoing a warring acceleration, in our opinion, due to the current international situation. And I'm referring to the Ukrainian, Ukrainian uh, war. I would say that our organization can be described in three main points. The first one is to oppose the presence of military personnel inside schools, to oppose what they proudly call the culture of defense, through which the military always present their role in the best light possible. Uh, in the citizen service, as holders of values such as armored defense, courage, strength, sacrifice, all values while rooted in patriarchal cultures, of which armies are one of the expression. I would like uh, to give uh, some concrete examples to better understand what military invasive presence consists of. In Italy, since 2017, work experience is compulsory for every student in the final three years of secondary school. There are many cases in which students carry out the compulsory school work experience in collaboration with military forces. This entails visits to military bases, including NATO bases or barracks. There is even some official agreement between the military defense and the Ministry of Education to this end. The metropolitan city of Rome capital, which manages six training centers in the Lazio regions, has recently entered into an agreement with a company called Leonardo to launch a three-year vocational education and training program with the aim of preventing school dropout. Leonardo is a large state-owned core partnership company involved in aerospace and military high-tech. Some subjects will be carried out directly by Leonardo personnel. This protocol is perfectly in line with the logic denounced by the observatory, namely the introduction of pervasive and consistent militaristic narrative in the areas of, of education and vocational training. The aim is to create manpower to be immediately employed in the production of weapons, a goal disguised by the prospect of finding easy employment at the conclusion of the, these three years uh, training course. The second point we use this, can use to describe our you know, association is to gather all those peace associations, trade unions, researchers, journalists, in short, all different kinds of cultural sectors in the country involved in promoting peace, but specifically interested in, in this topic, I mean, military inside schools. Through the Centro Studi, um, Scuola Pubblica, is a training institution organized by the Ministry of Education and is run by the union. We have organized, organized from May 2022 seminars for schools personnel and, and students also in various provinces of Italy entitled the School Laboratory of Peace, Managing Conflicts and Preventing War. And historians, researchers, pacifist associations from the Catholic world, such as Pax Christi, 
have collaborated with us as speakers from, from the beginning. And uh, these conferences, very well attended, have allowed us to begin building a database of people and associations in tune with our contents. And from here, the proposal to establish a national observatory in an effort to reach different kinds of cultural sector in the country. Uh, the third point, okay, you can use, is that even if his name, observatory, suggests a passive action, it doesn't limit his activity in collecting information about military or defense industry presence in, within the school, but it offers to everybody tools and strategies to fight this intrusion. The majority of the observatory members work in schools or universities, and this is very important because at the moment, the most efficient way to fight to contain the world culture is to act from within the school. I'm going to give you some examples of pragmatic campaigns implemented by the observatory. The first one, Vademecum, is like a guidebook and uh, it has been sent to every Italian school. It's uh, addressed to teachers, students, and parents, and it gives both a general view of the problem and specific information about what is happening in many schools and universities. We also suggest ways to organize themselves in order to be more effective in denouncing and opposing the presence of military in their, in their school. Finally, the guide offers specific legal tools that can be used within the democratic bodies governing the school. Another example, last month, we conducted a national campaign through the press and social media against the marketing of school bags and other social material, school material, advertising the army. Also, the observatory has recently launched a petition concerning university. Uh, with it, we asked 12 vice chancellors to step down from Medor board. Uh, Medor is the cultural foundation created by Leonardo, the biggest army company in Italy. We already talked about Leonardo. And we also ask these universities to stop any kind of partnership or research program with war-related business. School is about is a place for education and training where non-military culture is acceptable, but increasing resources are being spent on bringing citizens closer to the military because of a growing international tide of belligerence and militarism. They come to our schools because they want to recruit our boys and girls. Since the formal world has changed, we are not facing an asymmetrical war for which highly specialized military personnel are needed. Nowadays, war is coming back to the ground and there is need for large numbers, those we see dying every day in Ukraine. In Italy, a new law has been drafted uh, proposing large concessions to those who decide to undertake, undertake even a short military career 
and then staying on as reservists. This law will also include schooling, probably in the form of schooling credits. We have to stand between these policies and our kids. We are teachers of peace and defenders of our uh, Italian constitution. The path is long, but we cannot afford to give up. We always like, we would like uh, to help in the reconstruction of a great peace movement in Italy, but also internationally. And this can only, can only succeed through young people, education and culture. We invite you to embark on a path of non-violent peaceful resistance and reaction and to coordinate ourselves in order to try to become more and more numerous, stronger uh, together. You've been listening to episode five of the Raising Peace podcast. Thanks to our guests on this episode, Christina Baghini and Elise West. This episode was produced by James Cox and Peter Griffin from Raising Peace and mixed and edited by Glenn Morrow from Audiocraft. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.